you go to your closet and you select, I don't know, that lumpy blue sweater, for instance, because you're trying to tell the world that you take yourself too seriously to care about what you put on your back, but what you don't know is that that sweater is not just blue, it's not turquoise, it's not lapis, it's actually cerulean. And you're also blithely unaware of the fact that in 2002, Oscar de la Renta did a collection of cerulean gowns, and then I think it was Yves Saint Laurent, wasn't it, who showed cerulean military jackets? I think we need a jacket here. Welcome to Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Hannah Jaffe-Wald. Today is Tuesday, October 26th, and that was a scene from The Devil Wears Prada you heard at the top of the show. My favorite scene, in fact. Uh, And we played that scene because a while ago we announced here at Planet Money, right on this very podcast, a special project. We are going to create a t-shirt and sell it to you, our listeners. The idea being that with this t-shirt, we would explore the business and economics behind the clothes that we wear. So, we made this big announcement on the podcast. We were all really excited. You, our listeners, were all really excited. And then, stasis. It turns out it's really hard for a small team of public radio employees to turn themselves into a cutting-edge apparel company. But today, we are back. Five months later, it is on, and we're happy to report the project is underway. We have two podcasts this week, each about an essential part of making our t-shirt and all the clothes that we wear. Today's show, The Economics of Design, and why we're thinking ripping other people off might be a good and perfectly legal, for now, business strategy for us to pursue. (laughs) But first, we need to do our Planet Money Indicator from J.J. Goldstein. Today's Planet Money Indicator is negative. It's negative 0.55%. That is the interest rate on the five-year bonds the U.S. government sold yesterday. So a negative interest rate, that means if I buy this bond now, I get less money back later, which is the opposite of what you normally want to do. So people all over Wall Street, big banks, are essentially paying the government for the privilege of lending the government money. Uh, On its face, yes. It's not quite as crazy as it sounds, although it is somewhat crazy. I, I I would say this is somewhat crazy. So these bonds, they aren't regular treasury bonds. They're called TIPS, which stands for Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. And they work like an adjustable rate mortgage. There's this basic interest rate, but then on top of that, you add extra payments that are based on inflation. So in this case, that basic interest rate is negative. It's negative half a percent. So so let's say the inflation rate over the next five years, Jacob, ends up being 2%, right? Investors in this bond will only get 1.5% interest. So their investment is guaranteed to not quite keep up with inflation, which is another way of saying it is guaranteed to lose value. So why are they doing this? Uh, well, they're doing it because at least here they know exactly how much they'll lose, right? It's like, yeah, we'll lose a little bit, but we're not going to get killed on this. And and if you compare it to, say, regular treasury bonds, it actually makes sense. Regular treasury bonds right now are paying about 1.2% interest, which is super, super low. So say you buy regular treasury bonds right now, 1.2% interest. Over the next five years, if, like you said, inflation is about 2%, you're going to get killed. You're going to do worse than if you took that negative 0.5% on the tips. You're actually better off with tips, even though you know you're going to get hit a little bit. And of course, if inflation goes even higher than 2%, which some people are very worried about, that it could spike and we could have you know much higher inflation, then you would be even more psyched to have your 
small loss locked in with tips. Right, because no matter how high inflation goes, you're going to just have a little bit less at the end. Whereas if you buy that regular treasury bond, you're only going to get your 1.2%, even if inflation goes crazy, in which case you're going to get totally hammered by inflation. I should also add here, this is the first time that we've seen a negative yield for tips. And and this negative yield combined with the super low yields for the regular treasuries, that suggests that investors are still really scared, generally speaking, about the market. And they're parking their money in basically the safest thing they can find. And the safest thing they can find is guaranteed to lose the money. But just a little bit. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Jacob. Thanks, guys. So, Hannah, remember five, five long months ago, cast your mind back when we first announced that we were doing this T-shirt project on the podcast. <laughs> I do. <laughs> and on that podcast, just to remind listeners, we went to some industry experts who gave us their advice for how to proceed. And we got two basic marching orders. One... Our design should involve storytelling in some way. Storytelling is apparently a big trend in fashion right now, and we like to think we're storytellers. So we liked that advice. Yes. Yes. And number two, the number two piece of advice was our audience, you guys, like quality. On average, anyway, you're not flashy, but you'll pay a bit more for an item of clothing than the average consumer. And then we concluded that podcast by asking you, our listeners, to send in your designs. And you did. Hundreds of designs came flowing in. They were all really great. And we thought, fantastic. This is going to be easy. We will just sit down as a group and pick our favorite. It'll take an hour. <laughs> I remember we actually scheduled an hour meeting for this. And an hour and a half later, we were nowhere. I remember feeling even more paralyzed because there's all these choices. Do we want white T-shirts or colored T-shirts? Do we want the design in the front or the back? Do we want it to be a literal Planet Money logo or something more abstract and aesthetic? <laughs> and by the way, there are thousands of different ways that a T-shirt can look. Like, do we want a crew neck T-shirt or a V-neck? Do we want it to be drapey or tight? There's women's and men's. There's unisex. In short, we had no idea how to make this decision, even if we'd scheduled that meeting to go the entire week. Because we didn't realize this in the beginning, but this is the essential decision in the fashion industry. What do your clothes look like? Clearly, we needed some help, so I went to a pro. Sophia Waxman is an executive at Macy's Department Stores who works in apparel design. Today, in October, we're, de- we're starting to design fall next year, right? So what's going to be actually in the store for fall next year? And so how do you know what people are going to like in a year. <laughs> we have a crystal ball that we keep locked up. Um, show me that. Show me the crystal ball. No, you're not allowed. It's our secret. Um, we we figure it out. That's what we do. <laughs> that's the advice you got? Yeah, that's the advice I got. Figure it out. So, And this this is the thing that I was here to talk to her about because I realized that what we are facing is sort of this weird economic question that is sort of unique to the fashion industry. So in most other industries, if I'm making, I don't know, routers, for example, if I make a faster router for the same price as other routers out there, I'm pretty confident that my faster router will sell better. There is an objective metric to use, speed. Yeah, I think about that like when they first came out with the iPhone. The iPhone was so different and it had so many more functions than any other smartphone that Apple could be pretty sure people would buy it. But in fashion, you don't have that. There aren't that many objective metrics to look at. I mean, there's been a lot of technological advances in fabric design, but red is not objectively better than blue. So faced with the choice between designing a red shirt and a blue shirt, how do you decide? Plus, you're spending all this money. The stakes are really high. When you see great big sales at, you know, in the store and you're like, oh my God, this is great because it's 80% off, like, 
someone's fired, you know? I mean, we're, we're in trouble for those kind of things. Um, the reason being that because somebody thought like, oh, this is going to be a big seller. This is going to be something that people at everybody's going to want. And everybody didn't want it, basically. Yeah, that can happen. Everybody didn't want it. So Sophia tells me, okay, there's no crystal ball. There's not really any metrics to guide us. How do we make our decision? We have to follow the trend, basically. In other words, do what a lot of people in the fashion industry do copy. Oh, well, copy is such a negative connotation. <laughs> I, I like to think of it as maybe borrowing or taking inspiration from other people. Yeah. I mean, designers regularly look through catalogs or go to other stores. I talked to one designer who moved to a new company and her boss at the new company gave her a bunch of clothes to use as inspiration. turns out one of the shirts was a shirt that she herself had designed at her old company. <laughs> so she uh, was supposed to take inspiration from herself. <laughs> exactly. Another designer told me that when he'd show his bosses a design, they'd ask, well, are our competitors selling something similar? Because if a competitor was selling it, they wanted to be selling it too? Right, exactly. Not the other way around. If other companies are selling it, that is an actual data point, some indication that you might be able to sell it too. I talked to a guy named Cal Rustiala about this. He's a law professor who's written a lot about copying in the fashion industry. It's not obvious that this, this dress is better or worse. Um, it's just different. It's not as if with a few weird exceptions, like, you know, we have more better waterproof fabrics or something, fashion doesn't improve. It's not like a cell phone. So how do you pick? And I think just observing the industry, there are those who really try to be out in front of the curve and to make trends, and there are those who tend to follow them. So basically, Alex, what we're learning is we have two options. We could either start a new trend all by ourselves and hope that everyone else out there wants to copy us, or we could follow a pre-existing trend, which basically means we copy everyone else. Now, I do think that we are pretty big trendsetters, Hannah. <laughs> Definitely. Just not in fashion. So maybe copying is the best route. And especially when you consider this conversation I had with another researcher, Johanna Blakely. She studies pop culture and the fashion industry at USC, the University of Southern California. And she says, another reason why we might want to consider copying you guys, our listeners, you want us to. There are several sociologists and cultural studies scholars who have looked at the dynamics of flocking and differentiation, that there's a human desire to demonstrate that you're aware of what's in vogue right now, and also a desire to make sure that you don't look like everybody else. And so that's how trends are constructed to offer you different iterations of a particular kind of look that's in right now, but allows you to select one piece of that spectrum to sort of demonstrate your differentiation from everyone else. So in other words, the fashion industry is full of copycats because of us people. We are impossible to please. <laughs> so the great mass of us want to look a little different, but not too different from everyone else. Now, Hannah, if I haven't convinced you yet, there's one more argument for copying as our business strategy. Unlike in many other industries like music or entertainment or pharmaceuticals, copying in fashion is perfectly legal. We could copy The Gap. We could copy Banana Republic. We could even forget the whole t-shirt idea and decide to sell a stitch-for-stitch -stitch knockoff of Chelsea Clinton's wedding dress. Of course, if we did that, we'd be too late. Just uh, the next day after the wedding on, uh, on television, uh, you have somebody who is peddling knockoffs of the exact same dress for, uh, uh, you know, a couple of hundred dollars. This is Alan Koblenz, who is hoping to put an end to the rampant copying 
in the fashion industry. Koblenz is an attorney for the Council of Fashion Designers of America. CFDA, that's a group of pretty influential designers in the United States. A lot of big names are members like Calvin Klein, Oscar de la Renta, Diane von Furstenberg. She's famous for the wrap dress, which she allegedly invented. Although others dispute this. And the CFDA has proposed legislation to bring copyright protection to the fashion industry. The legislation would give a uh, a window of exclusivity to the creator of the design uh, of three years. During this time, no one else would be able to reproduce a protected design without paying some sort of licensing fee. And this bill has actually been submitted to Congress for a vote by Charles Schumer, senator from New York. It seems to have a good chance of passing. Which makes Cal Rustiala nervous. So remember, he's the intellectual property lawyer, and he, with his colleague Christopher Sprigman, wrote a paper called The Piracy Paradox, Innovation and Intellectual Property in Fashion Design. And that paradox? Well, here, I'll let him explain. We normally think that copying is bad for creativity because if you're copied, you're, or if you know you will be copied, you won't create in the first place or you won't invest in creation as much. And so copying will eventually destroy creativity. And, th- and that's sort of a standard axiomatic sort of principle. If you don't have strong intellectual property, you will not have as much innovation. Yeah, that's, that's the underlying principle. That's why we have intellectual property law, generally speaking. You need to give a pharmaceutical company an exclusive right over their drug because they pour an enormous amount of money into creating it. And if you don't, they would never pour that enormous amount of money in. So that's the underlying. Right. It's, it's, a, it's a very instrumental theory of creativity. Right. And so in the fashion context, what was interesting to us is that there is no copyright protection for fashion design, yet we see a lot of creativity. Copying didn't actually hurt creativity very much. In fact, it may help it. So the idea is you have a design, it comes out, people adopt it, it becomes more popular. It gets copied. When it starts to become really popular, those early adopters want to move on to something new. They want something fresh. And so we call it induced obsolescence. So the idea is that copying and the ability to copy freely spreads the design more rapidly than would happen otherwise. And that in turn makes the the those early adopters seek out the next new, new thing faster than they would otherwise. And the industry, being a competitive industry, responds with new designs. So we see a lot more churning. Another way to think about it is there are more designs being put out to try to grab uh, those those most fashion-conscious consumers because they are already sick of whatever it was that they bought six months ago. So if you're a fashion designer, getting ripped off could actually be good for you. According to Cal Rustiella, yes. Although clearly... Not all designers see it that way, at least not at the CFDA, the Council of Fashion Designers of America. But let's think about this for a second. If you're the designer of Chelsea Clinton's wedding dress, maybe you don't like it that your design is now on sale on the Internet. But to the many, many people who apparently want to get married in the exact dress that Chelsea Clinton wore but don't have the money that Chelsea Clinton has, this situation is ideal. It was a nice dress. And this is where we get into the economics of intellectual property or IP protection. So economically, intellectual property protection has a huge downside because it basically awards the holder of the protection an anti-competitive monopoly. Like you get to make this idea and no one else can unless they pay you for it. So all those Chelsea Clinton dress wanters, they can't have the dress. Right, which essentially means there's not competition to drive down the price of that dress or to improve the dress and to get it out to more people. Exactly. One economist I talked to said that IP rights are a, quote, second best solution. 
If there's no other way to incentivize creativity, then sure, you can grant some intellectual property protection. But if an industry is already thriving creatively, then adding IP protection just creates more hassle and lawyer's fees, which Cal Rustiala, the piracy paradox guy, and a lawyer himself agrees is a problem. I think if you add in lawyers into the fashion design process, you're just inevitably going to empower those with more money to hire the better lawyers and to use, you know, it's very costly to defend yourself against a a copyright lawsuit. Whether you're in the right or in the wrong, it's going to cost you a lot of money to defend yourself. And for a lot of people, they're just going to fold. So you end up creating what some people call, call a kind of clearance culture in which you have to clear everything. And if you can't clear it, you can't move forward. So you hand a pretty powerful hammer uh, to to those who have um, good lawyers on their side. I personally have a thought on it, and it is that it would be a nightmare. And this brings us back to Sophia Waxman, remember the executive at Macy's who works in apparel design. And her concern is pretty common among people in the fashion industry that I talk to. Her concern, how exactly would this work in practice? The whole fashion industry, whether you are way up high, whether you're Marc Jacobs or whether you're The Gap or whomever, they take inspiration from each other. So how does – I'm not sure that, you know, I like Chuck Schumer as much as the next guy, but I'm not so sure how you pinpoint where it actually – who did it first. Okay, so Alex – Yes. We do still have to actually decide how to design our T-shirt, right? So let Mm -hmm. me guess. Oh, we're copying. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) We're not going to be bold trendsetters. We are going to be trend followers all the way. So, for example, we're not going to hire a designer to create a brand new pattern that we would use to make the actual T-shirt, the actual garment of our T-shirt. You know, we're going to borrow from an existing T-shirt pattern. And, of course, the graphic, we are also going to be borrowing from a trend copying a trend, if you will. And to help us do that, we've enlisted the help of Tinker Studios in London. And Tinker Studios was one of the many groups of people who sent us great ideas of how to design our t-shirt. And their idea is to follow a trend called QR codes. And those are the codes that you maybe see popping up in billboards all over the place. They're like a barcode that you can scan with your smartphone. And when you do that, it'll take you to a website. So we're going to use those QR codes in our T-shirt design so that with the aid of technology, you will literally be able to have the T-shirt you are wearing tell you the story of how it was created. We are even going to copy the colors. We are? Yep. Every designer that I've talked to has said fall of 2011, it's got to be green or gray. (laughs) Really? Green or gray. Those are the colors that will be on all the store shelves in 2011. Our T-shirts will be no exception. We have a basic design, a basic design strategy anyway. Next up, we need four bales of cotton to make our T-shirts out of. And on Friday, Hannah, you're going to help us figure out where in the world to buy them. It is not an easy choice. Turns out nothing is. In the meantime, share your thoughts with us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash planetmoney. And visit our website, npr.org slash money. We're going to put a link up there to Cal Rustiala's paper about the piracy paradox. I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Thank you for listening. I won't look back anymore. I left the people that do. It's not the chase that I love.